Amen. Thank you, Todd. Uh, Todd is a jack of all trades. You see him there. You see him here last week. He does a lot of things behind the scenes, video editing. And so he is a wizard. And so we want to say thank you to Todd this morning. So I want us to give my welcome to those who have gathered in person. Congratulations, you've made it. Or if you're on the World Wide Web, a big shout out to my people out on the internet. And so my name is Johnny Russell, and I have been once again pulled from the Bethel, not Ethel, Bethel bullpen to be here with you. And so I would say hashtag thank you COVID, hashtag seventh grade B team preacher, Paired to Ross, hashtag Bethel is desperate now. And so, no, I, I kid that I love, I love to be here. I love to serve in this capacity. I love to uh, preach God's word to myself as well as to you. And even with COVID, this pandemic amongst us, every August, every September is wheels off. It's always wild. It's always crazy. School has begun. Sports have begun. We're getting back to a new normal-ish. Now we're kind of a new, new normal uh, in a pandemic where we have routine. Man, routine is clutch in my family versus a summer vacation lifestyle. Now most of us are getting up before the sun rises to get ready to live life in the fast lane uh, throughout the week. And for me and my bride, Taylor, we are so thankful that our kids are out of the house. Can I, can I confess that to you? Can I share that with you? I've always been guilty. Like, dude, you always say what people are thinking. Well, I am. I'm confessing that is a blessing that school has begun and we're ushering our kids out to be taught by other humans. It is a gift. And so we are in week two of our week three series of our vision series. Our, our church, Bethel Bible Church, has a vision of who we are as a church. We have a doctrinal statement that is overwhelming uh, at minimum. That's 19 points or principles of who we are. If you want to read deeply of who we are, the full doctrinal statement is who we are. But if you want to know kind of at a service level, uh, everything aside, we have, we're about three things. And I'm going to talk about those three things as we speak about vision. I'm going to be 40 four years old on Thursday. Shout out to my September peeps. Um, so I'll be 44 and, all, and the majority of my life, even, even today, I have had good vision. My eyes have been good to me. I know that's not true for some people. And so, um, but a couple years ago, I started having this kind of weird crescent moon kind of outer rim uh, thing pop up in my eye. It wouldn't happen often. It would come about every two or three months, and but it, when it came, it would stay for 15 or 20 minutes. And so after seeing my doctor back in May, uh, he said, you know, we should probably, you should probably go see an eye doctor. And I was like, people do that? I, I, I didn't know that. I've, I've, if I'm gonna be honest with you, thank you for being honest. You should always say that. Thank you for being honest. People just, you know, it's good to be truthful. So um, if I'm gonna be honest with you, I hadn't, ever been to an eye doctor 
appointment. The, that's not wholly true. I guess in 1983 in elementary school, I went to the nurse's office and they have you stand on the red X and you read the chart on the wall, you know, R-S-T-L-N-E. Everybody knows that's at the top of the chart and so you just lie, you got it memorized, you pass it down the row so that everybody in elementary school has 20-20 vision. And so I, I, that's the last uh, exam that I had had. So I make an appointment and they send me this packet of paperwork of who my doctor's gonna be, how I do it, where I go, make sure I wear a mask, a face shield, a hazmat suit to come in. And uh, they, they say in there that you're gonna get your eyes dilated. I'm East Texas boy, I always wanna say dilated, dilated, but dilated, um, whatever that means. I, had, I didn't know what that meant. And so, because we're gonna dilate your eyes, you may need um, a driver to get you home. And I'm gonna pull back the curtain on my heart to let you know how jacked up I am, how sinful I am. I have a little bit of a rebellious nature. Um, I have a little bit of an arrogance to me, and so, amen, amen. We got a baby back there. That's what I'm talking about. She's like, yeah, me too. Um, so I read this, and it says, you may need a driver. And I go, <laughs> most men would probably need a driver, but I'm not like most men. And so there's no way I didn't know what dilating meant. And so I'm not gonna need that. So I show up for my appointment, it's great, I'm masked up, and uh, I go in a room with a, with a nurse assistant, and I'm, this place is like NASA compared to the nurse's office back in 1983. I mean, they've got machines everywhere. They have me stick my head in a machine. I mean, it's like R2-D2, like Star Wars kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm going, you know, I've got my mask on, so it's fogging the thing up. And I, I feel cheated, like, man, maybe it's blurry because of my fog, or maybe it is my vision. I'm about to be 44, hashtag. And so I, I'm going along, and she then informs me that, She's going to put drops in my eyes. I don't do drops. Eyes, in my opinion, I don't touch my eyes. I don't jack with my eyes. Eyes are not meant to be messed with. And she says, well, if you want this exam to go further, we have to put drops in your eyes. I'm gonna put two drops in each eye. The first drop that I put in your eye is going to numb your eye. I'm like, numb my eye? I didn't even, one, I'm not sure I knew my eye had a lot of feeling to begin with, but why in the world are you going to numb my eye? I'm thinking what's coming next is like a needle. Ain't about needles in my eye, I will tell you that. So she says, the next drop, I'm going to dilate your eye. And so she gets up with her eyedropper and I go, no ma'am, no ma'am. You need to sit back down and walk me step by step about what you're about. I'm not about any of this, what's going on. I mean, it, we chuckled, oh my gosh, we chuckled. And she told me, okay, I'm going to rise from my chair. I'm then going to walk towards you. I go, I'm smelling what you're smoking, right? And so she, I roll my head back and she puts the drops in. Oh, I said, before you start on your little dropper deal, why do you have to numb my eye? She said, because the dilating drop is going to burn it. 
I'm like, burn it. I'm, I, this is all foreign to me. So I allow this other human to put something in my eye that I didn't know fully what was going to happen. My world is about to be rocked. And so I lean back and she does the numbing drops and then she does the burning drops and she sits back down and I'm like, your, your vision is going to get blurry, extremely blurry. Um, you'll still be able to see, but your vision will get blurry and sinful heart. I'm like, <laughs> maybe for most men, like that's how their eyes are going to react, but mine are strong and healthy. That's how my eyes are. And I'm sitting there chatting it up and about 10 minutes in, blindsided, I cannot see my telephone. I take my phone and I put my right up to my eye. I put it on the desk and I back up because she said I'll be able to see from far away and I could not see my phone. One drop, one drop in each eye and it messed me up. And I, then I got scared. Like, will my vision ever come back? Am I now in a torture chamber with a mad scientist and I know the eye doctor well, and I thought, he's kind of like a mad scientist. Um, so I began getting nervous. Then I thought, oh my gosh, man, if there is a way to get information out of like terrorists or my kids, man, Jack with someone's eye, and then I went into like a, a dark, sinful part of me. I was in a Jack, a Jason Bourne, Jack Bauer movie trilogy, like making life happen. One drop, one drop altered my entire vision of seeing clearly. I will have you know that I did drive myself to my office on my own, Thank you. I then walked into my office, got on a Zoom call, and cried through the entire time, or so it looked. My eyes just watered, and my friends made fun of me so much. Uh, it was brutal. But never before have I taken for granted my vision than I did on the 17th of August. Man, I, I actually walked out of there, and uh, again, I don't know. I don't know if it's illegal to drive after your eyes get dilated. I did. Um, as I get to my truck and I'm, tr I'm, I'm literally trying to look at my phone, get a phone call out. Um, but I prayed for folks who wake up every morning that don't see clearly, right? Before they touch their eyes, which I'm not about, before they stick things in them or put on eyeglasses. And then I thought about spiritually. Like, how many of us have a blurry spiritual vision? I, I, I mean, can I, can, can you, um, can we say that we see clearly spiritually or has our heart been dilated by the world around us, by maybe even our own sin that is causing us to not see clearly. If there's a day in my 43, almost 44 years on this planet, this is the season where people are not seeing clearly. Our world is jacked up all over. I mean, you wanna blurry someone's vision? You wanna up someone's heart rate? Talk about the Republican or Democratic National Convention immediately, it's like people's heads start, oh, like people are not seeing clearly. 
Ross, Pastor Ross said a few weeks ago that clarity is found in prayer. I love that, that clarity is found in prayer, that vision is important. Clarity is key to know who we are and where we are going. And so Bethel's vision, like I said, 19, a full doctrinal statement, or if you're like me, just give me, give me the cliff notes. Here's who we are, about three things. Building leaders, Todd preached on that last week. Living generously, we'll be there today. And next week, we'll be in growing communities. I like to look at it, hadn't been approved by the trustee board quite yet, but I like to look at it, building leaders, that's an inward act. Living generously, that's an outward act. And then growing communities, that is a collective act. And I'll tell you, man, that phrase, living generously, makes me come alive. I feel like that is who I am in the wheelhouse of how I was designed to be a child of God. And so, this passage that we're going to read, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. So, if you have your Bible, your tablet, it will be on the screens behind us. Um, that's where we're going to be. And for me... It is like practical Christian living 101. It's like Jesus in blue jeans, like down to the core, the gospel down to the core, lived out through his people. And so I'm gonna read this passage and then I'm gonna pray and then we're going to unpack um, this really straightforward, this really simple, this really sweet and strong but yet challenging passage. So here we go. First Peter chapter four, verse seven, the end of all things is near. Therefore be clear minded and self-controlled so that you can pray above all love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this unbelievable passage that is so simple, that is so sweet, it is so straightforward. Um, God, it's how you lived. It's how you loved. It's how you served. It's how you spoke. God, and help us, would you challenge us to do the same as your body. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. And so we're going to unpack it. First Peter 4, verse 7. He's going to say, the end of all things is near. The first part, 7a. This is not an unusual, um, an, an unusual verse that is, is, as it is mentioned multiple times in the New Testament. Paul talks about it in Romans. He also mentions it in Philippians. James talks about it in his book. John writes about it in 1 John 
as well as in Revelation. And spoiler alert, uh, in mid-September, we're going to do a study through the book of First John. And so the end of all things is near. Not a new concept for me. I don't know exactly what, the, um, what Peter meant or what any of the writers meant, whether they thought that Jesus would in fact, after he ascended to heaven, after he died and was buried and rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven, that his return, which will happen, his return, that they thought that maybe it would happen in their life. And, and so I don't know if they thought that or if they look at it like the end will come, the end is near. Looking um, with the end in mind, how are we living today, right? And Peter's going to address that exact same thing. And so, or we can look at it like I look at travel with my children. I have four young children. They're very active, ask lots of questions. And when we're driving along the road, uh, how long until we get there? Maybe you're a great parent and you give them the destination, exactly how much time down to the second and the mile marker. Or if you're like me, rebellious, um, I say, hey, just trust me, when we get there, we'll get there. But every mile, every second that we go, we get closer to our destination because for all of us, the end is near. We live life, or all of life is lived in the shadow of eternity. When we are born, it starts the clock to when we will leave this planet. And so the end of all things is near. The second part, 7b says, therefore, whenever you see the word therefore, you should say, what is there for? What is there for? With the end in mind, here's how you should live. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Man, th this verse is interesting to me because as you walk down this verse, be clear-minded, all right? Be self-controlled, all right, so that you can pray. I'm like, pray? Like, that seems like a unique word to put at the end of that passage. I would think, hey, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can make good business decisions. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can be a great disciple. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can be an awesome husband. But that's not what Peter does. Peter takes us to prayer, and I love that. He takes us to prayer. The one thing that truly is going to help us recalibrate or to center us to our spiritual center, which is Jesus. And then he says, be clear-minded. Be clear-minded. 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 I don't want to be judgmental, but I will. I ain't scared to judge somebody. Just kidding. But I will say, if you spend your days outside of God's word, outside of his worship, outside of prayer, and you spend your days on the television, on social media, on talk radio, if you're like me, it is impossible to be clear-minded. 
It is impossible to clear, be clear-minded. And if you're not clear-minded, something that I think goes kind of hand-in-hand hand would be self-controlled. If you're not clear-minded, then more than likely you're not self-controlled. And you may be asking yourself or asking me, why should I be the one who is clear-minded and self-controlled when no one else is? And that is a valid question. And my only response is because that is what God has called us to. For his followers, for his disciples, for his church to be clear-minded and self-controlled. Why? So that we can pray. Man, pray. A plus B equals C. A is self, uh, clear-minded. B is self-controlled. C, so that we can pray. And I love it when um, you get to lead a Bible study or you get to talk about your faith that God brings in kind of things that you're already studying. I've already been in Colossians, I've been studying Colossians, especially Colossians 3 the past few weeks and I'm a fan of Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest. And in Fridays, two days ago, devotional, it says this about prayer, prayer it is not part of the life of a natural man to pray. We hear it said that a man will suffer in his life if he does not pray. I question it. What will suffer is the life of the Son of God, that's Jesus living in his people, which is nourished not by food, but by prayer. When a man is born from above, when he's born again, the life of the Son of God is born in him, and he can either starve that life or nourish it. Prayer is the way the life of God is nourished. The Bible idea of prayer is that we may get to know God himself. The Bible idea of prayer is that we may get to know God himself. It is not so true that prayer changes things. What? It is not so true that prayer changes things. As that, prayer changes me, and I change things. God has so constituted things that prayer on the basis of redemption alters. Remember the one drop that altered my vision. Five hours. Five hours I was not the same. Five hours that altered my vision that God so constituted things that prayer on the basis of redemption alters the way in which a man looks at things. Prayer is not a question of altering things externally but of working wonders in a man's disposition. I love that. He will say, go on, Oswald is the one that says, prayer doesn't prepare us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Be self-controlled, clear-minded, so that you can pray. Are you ready for verse eight? Verse eight uh, says, above all, Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude, covers over a multitude of sins. <laughs> Above all, before anything else, Peter says, this shows the importance of love. And here I'm gonna, I'm gonna go through a few verses um, that are gonna be a, a, a punch maybe to our soul. And so we're gonna go over to Colossians 3, verse 12 through 14. Colossians 3, verse 12 says, therefore, 
what is therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, all wrapped up. Individually, they're unbelievable, all wrapped up with the marrow of love. They are the very DNA of the cross. Love that. We're going to flip over a little further to the left of 1 Corinthians 13. This, if you've been to a Christian wedding, you've probably heard this, the love chapter, right? 1 Corinthians, you hear about love is patient, love is kind. And before any of those trendy things that are read at a wedding, Paul says, Paul says this to the Corinthian church in verse 1. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, yes, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. And he ends it with verse 13 of that chapter And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Man, that's crazy because I read things like, again, curtain on my heart. I read, I want to speak of the tongues of men and of angels. I'm like, I want to do that. I, 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 wanna, I wanna do that. I, the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge and a faith that can move mountains. Yes, I want that. It says maybe if you give, all, give away everything you own to the poor and surrender my body to the flames. Yes, I wanna do that. I wanna lay my life down for the gospel, for Jesus. But if you don't have love, You're only making noise. It's only about you. I would think, then it goes on to say that love covers a multitude of sins. And I feel like that when love is truly present, maybe this is going to sound crazy, but when love is truly present, a lot of things, sins or relational misses or emotional losses, that when Love is truly presence. Those things can be overlooked. But when love is absent, it discredits everything else and even magnifies those sins or relational misses or emotional losses. Love is the game changer. Love changes everything. I mean, we're, we're two verses in. I mean, isn't this like Jesus in blue jeans kind of stuff, like living out the gospel of who God has called his church to be? Ideally, that we as the church would be living generously. And sometimes I just want to say, wake 
up. Church, is the church or believers living any different than the world around us? Verse 9 says this. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Man, that sounds so simple. Hospitality, game changer. Grumbling, another game changer. You cannot be hospitable if you're going to uh, gripe about it. You cannot complain. You cannot, those two don't, do not go hand in hand. Back to Colossians 3, verse 17. says, whatever you do, whether in word or in deed or in service, um, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Six verses later, Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for me, not for the church, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, and then I love, Paul just throws a blanket, or whatever else you do, or in everything that you do, do it all for the glory of God. Love above all. Be hospitable. I I love these two. Those two things drew me to Jesus. When I was in college, I was a freshman in college back in the 1900s, and there was a guy named Stan in my dorm who lived out this Colossians 3.12 list that he was compassionate, he was kind as a college dude. He was humble, he was gentle, and he was patient, and he loved those around him, and he didn't cuss, and he didn't drink alcohol. I thought he was the strangest creature on my college campus because I was none of what Colossians 3 talked about and I did the other two in excess, but yet I was drawn to him. I was drawn to him. Stan loved me as I was, not as I should be. Stan loved me as I was, not as I should be. Nobody wants to be a project. Everybody is longing to be loved. Everybody is longing to be loved. I'd come back to our dorm two, three, four in the morning, whatever the night was, and I wanted to get under Stan's skin because he was too nice, like he was too pure, like he was too good, and I wanted to rattle that. And so I would bang on his door, and Stan had been asleep for four hours, and he would open his door, and he would turn on the light, and he would invite me into his dorm room and let me rant and rave about the escapades from that night's activities. Stan was the first person in my life that lived out these virtues and spoke about Jesus like he knew him and spoke about Jesus, that he had a relationship like we had, like Stan and I had. He spoke about Jesus that way and it changed my life 
forever. The trajectory of my life was forever changing. My family's life, my brother's lives, and my parents' lives, and my, my, my marriage and my kids' life, it changed because of love above all, because of his hospitality, because of the things he did. And is hospitality costly? Yes. Takes time, potentially money, resources, maybe energy for sure, sleep for my buddy Stan. Does it have to be perfect? No. If you're waiting before you have someone in your house, before every Cheerio is picked up or the walls are perfectly painted or the hedges are trimmed just right, it just won't happen if you live a life like me. And maybe you're waiting for the time to be right before you give your life away, before you serve, as, as Jesse and Jessica said. And we're not promised tomorrow. Maybe you're just waiting for that right opportunity for the Lord to open the door to pour out and love someone who doesn't look like you or stinking vote like you or live in your neighborhood. Do you know anyone like that? Golly, wake up. Church, is it costly? Yes. Does it have to be perfect? No. Is it worth it? Absolutely. Every time. Hospitality is worth it, and it is a game changer. So why pray? Why love? Why be hospitable? Verse 12 or verse 10 is going to be the reason. And he says this, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve one another or to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. We are the body of Christ. And I'm, I'm always just blown away by the graciousness of Jesus, the generosity of Jesus when he, he, he's come to God, has put on skin and come to earth and has lived a life so that people can know him and the people can know his father and can live with him for eternity. And then he dies and is, is buried and is raised to life and is ascended. And he left the gospel, this good news of, of being clear-minded, of praying and being self-controlled and loving and being hospitable, he left it in the hands of 11 dudes who are just, just like you and me. Uh, part of me wants to go, were you nuts? What in the world? But he was playing, he is using his body that you and me that he is using. Are you being used? Romans 12, four through eight, uh, I'll sum it up. It says, we've all got gifts. We're one body. We all have different members. We're all doing a certain thing. Use them. First Corinthians, going back to Corinthians, verse 12, pretty much says the same thing as Romans 12 did. We all have a role. We all have a role in the church. We all have a role in this world. Are you using your gift? You do have a gift. You do have a gift. Are you using, if you're not, then this church and the, the, the larger church, capital C, then we are not complete. Verse 11, 
If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And according to Peter, it sounds like there's really only two lanes that we need to be in as believers. We either need to be serving or we need to be speaking. Which one are you doing? If you're a believer in Christ, which one are you doing today? Which one did you do last week? Which one are you gonna do this week? We are called to be that. Are we living generously as disciples, as followers, as his church? Man, what a great privilege. What a great opportunity that you and, and, and I have to be the ambassadors of the God of the universe, his literal mascot, his hands and his feet today to a lost in a dying world, we're called to be stewards, just administering, just giving away God's love and God's grace. Not for me, not for our church, not for our community, but for him, but for him. Last Friday, I read Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest, the day before, he had something that pertains exactly to living generously, and he calls it theology alive. Comes from John 12, verse 35, walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. He says, beware of not acting upon what you see in your moments on the mount with God, if you do not obey the light, it will turn into darkness. Quotes, if therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? The second you wave the question of sanctification or any other thing upon which God gave you light, here it comes, you begin to get dry rot in your spiritual life. Continually bring the truth out into actuality. Work it out in every domain or the very light that you have will prove a curse. The most difficult person to deal with is the one who has the smug satisfaction of an experience to which he can refer back to, but who is not working it out in his spiritual life. If you say you're sanctified, then show it, then live it. The experience must be so genuine that it is shown in the life Beware of any belief that makes you self-indulgent. It came from hell, no matter how beautiful it sounds. You may know all about the doctrine of sanctification, but are you running it out into the practical issues of your life? Our vision statement is to live generously. Are we living generously? That's what Jesus did, and that's what we're called to do for his glory and his power. It's not about us. It's all about him forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, God, you are good, and uh, we thank you for the gift of your son.
and how that changes everything. I pray for anyone in here or online who doesn't know you, not that they, maybe they've been in church or been religious, but God, do they know you um, intimately? Have they given their life? Have they surrendered their life to you? God, are they a new creation in you? God, would you help us as your disciples, as your church, as your followers to live generously today and this week. Thank you, Father, for First Peter. I pray that it would wreck us this week, Jesus. In your name, amen.